My name is Journey, and I'm joined here today by the lovely Nicole and Rebecca. This week, Rebecca will be telling us all about the Phantom of Heilbronn, which I'm very excited about, and Nicole will be educating us on DNA contamination and the issues surrounding it in legal investigations. This is something we've talked about a lot in our classes, so I'm actually very excited to see how it ties into this case. And, surprisingly, for this episode, there's no listener's discretion advice, so that's new for murder cases. Obviously, if you don't want to hear about murder, don't listen. Uh, Anyway, I'll pass that off to Rebecca. All right. So the Phantom of Helbron, she was also known as the Woman Without a Face, and she was active for 16 years between 1993 and 2009 in Germany, France, and Austria. So... In this time, her DNA was found at over 40 crime scenes, and this included many break-ins and robberies, as well as multiple murders. Uh, So with this little preface of this unknown criminal, let's just get into some specific crimes. Uh, So I won't be going into detail about every single crime, because as I did just say, there was over 40, and that is going to take us hours. So... I would like to start with the very first crime that her DNA was found at, and that was of the murder of Lisalette Schlanger. So, on May 23rd of 1993, 62-year-old Schlanger was found dead in her home in Idar Obernstein, Germany. Um, she was discovered by a neighbor after her neighbor had gone over for a cup of tea with her, uh, and upon knocking on the door, she got no answer. She was a little worried, so she tried again and still got no response, and so after this, uh, the neighbor became increasingly worried and phoned the police. When the police had arrived, they opened up Schlinger's apartment and found that she was dead on her living room floor with a wire tied around her neck. The death uh, because of this was automatically deemed suspicious and an investigation was underway. The police had found that the wire that was tied around her neck actually came from a bouquet of flowers that she had in her home, uh, that the killer had uh, taken the wire off the bouquet and just thrown the flowers on the table all messy. And there was actually hardly any evidence at the scene. There was no evidence of a break-in or forced entry, which suggests that the killer was either familiarized with the uh, victim or they built up a report before going in. Um, So as I had said, there was hardly any evidence. They had no witnesses, no fingerprints, and no footprints. Uh, One of the only pieces of evidence they did find was a trace amount of DNA that was on the rim of a teacup. Just before I continue, DNA on the rim of a teacup could have been from anybody who had been at her house, but that's that's just a side note. Um, So uh, they kind of hit a dead end because in 1993, DNA technology was still up and coming. So they didn't actually analyze this DNA until 2001. But at this time, they determined that the DNA had come from a woman, but that the woman wasn't the victim. So, at the time, the DNA didn't match any suspects, so they held on to the evidence in hope that maybe sometime it would be useful. So, the second case uh, didn't occur for quite a few years later. It was March 26, 2001, when 61-year-old Joseph Walzenbach was found dead in his antique shop that he owned in Freilberg, Breisgau, Germany. 
Similar to Schlanger, the first victim, Walzenbach was found strangled, but this time it was with a, a bit of garden twine instead of wire. In addition, he had about $230 missing from his shop, which I forgot to mention before, but that is a similarity between the crimes because of the first victim. They noticed that she had taken all of her savings out of her bank account like a couple days prior, but when they went in to investigate her house, they couldn't find the cash anywhere. So uh, it's believed that the killer had turned the antique shop sign to closed before he committed this murder uh, because there were minute traces of DNA found on the back of the sign. Similar to the first case again, uh, there was no... There wasn't a lot of evidence left behind. There were no witnesses or anything. Uh, and the most evidence left was a little bit of DNA. The DNA they found, as I had said, was on the closed sign, but also on the victim's body and on various items in the shop as well as the door handle. Uh, the DNA of this scene, they tested this, and at the time we had the technology to do so, um, and they found that this DNA actually matched that of the Schlanger murder case seven years prior. So because of all these similarities, as well as the uh, similar DNA, police suspected in Germany that they may have a developing serial killer on the loose. They weren't so quick to call them a serial killer yet because there was only two victims and to be a serial killer, it's three or more. Uh, so despite the fact that they had DNA evidence, again, there's no one in the system that matched this. So they had to unfortunately uh, leave the case cold. The next case wasn't so much a crime, more so as uh, it led them to a bit of insight about who the criminal was. Uh, so it was just a few months after Walzenbach's death. It was in October of 2001 that a seven-year-old boy, whose name was Jürgen Bueller, uh, was playing on a playground in his hometown of Geraldstein, Germany, and he stepped on a discarded needle. So uh, when he stepped on this needle at the park, uh, he shattered it, so it hurt him a little bit. I believe he bled. Um, and he brought it home to his parents to show them the shattered needle, which I thought was a little odd, but okay. Um, and obviously, his parents, when he got home, were very concerned that their son had just stepped on this. Uh, their biggest concern at this time was that there could have been uh, the HIV virus on it. Uh, so they brought their son to the hospital and they did tests. They did find some skin cells and blood on the tip of the needle, so that's what they tested. They found that there was no HIV virus on the needle, so he was safe, but that the needle had been used to shoot heroin. Do you think he had any residue heroin in him? Is that how it works? I don't know, but I really <laughs> I don't know hope how not. heroin works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Could you imagine, though, your son just comes home so high and you're like, what happened? And you're like, I stepped on this needle. And you're like, okay, let's go to the hospital right now, please. <laughs> okay, you're in danger. <laughs> so after they took him to the hospital and discovered that he was safe, but that it was used for heroin, the parents were really concerned that this heroin needle was found at a children's park. They didn't want more kids to be in danger. <laughs> they didn't know what kind of people were hanging around. So they demanded a police investigation. Um, so of the blood and skin cells on the needle, the police were able to get a DNA profile. And what they found was the DNA profile of the unknown female from the first two killings. Weird. Nice. So her DNA was on the needle that the kid stepped on as well. Yes. Oh, okay. How far away 
were these crimes from one another? Because they're still all in Germany, are they not? Yes, they are. Um, so far. I'm not okay. positive how far away they were, but I believe they said none of them were any further than a two-hour drive from each other. Oh, okay. Oh, so it's bad. reasonable to assume that this person was involved in all of these crimes. Yeah. So, okay. um, gotcha. in the police investigation, when they found her DNA, um, obviously they were really intrigued because this is a killer's DNA on this needle. Uh, so they had a criminal profiler whose name was Kurt Kletzer, uh, make a profile based on the known information of this killer. And what he concluded was that the unknown female suspect was from a damaged home life, had been abused, uh, by drug addicted caretakers and that she was quote, compelled to murder to feed her habit thus reducing the victim to a status of a worthless object unquote Hmm, so that's that's, super sad yeah that's a little sad that they thought she was making victims into worthless objects but yeah carrying on uh um after those two murders in the heroin syringe the murders actually kind of stopped for a little bit and uh there were quite a few thefts so following the murders the DNA was showing up on a lot of theft and burglary scenes in Germany, France, and Austria. Um, majority of the crimes that they did find her DNA at were uh, thefts and robberies. So I'm not going to go into detail about every one of them because there were like over 22 of them. So the first one I wanted to talk about was on October 25th of 2001. Someone had their caravan broken into in Mainz, Budenheim, Germany. The offender ate part of a cookie and then left the other half of the cookie in the caravan before they left. (laughs) Um, So obviously police were able to get DNA from this. And it also, again, happened to be some of the only evidence found on the scene. And it was linked to this unknown female. Um, so then in January 2003, there was another theft, this time in an office building in Dietzenbach, Germany. Uh, this place had been broken into and they had some items stolen. And once again, the only evidence was DNA matching the suspect from the crimes before. They're getting really fed up because why is this criminal everywhere doing so many different types of crime (laughs) and leaving nothing? Um... They were a little confused because they didn't think a drug-addicted criminal could be so careful, but they just told the public that the reason they weren't finding fingerprints or anything was because the criminal was wearing gloves. So, in 2000... Makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. Um, So, in December of 2003, there was another... theft this time a car was stolen in Heilbronn Germany and upon finding it uh, they found her DNA on the gas cap of the car I don't know if they're just not looking for any more evidence or if they're only looking for DNA I don't know why there's no evidence at any of these crime scenes but oh well so continuing with theft uh, this was a really big theft this kind of shifted gears a little in arbois france in 2004 there was a group of vietnamese gem dealers who were actually attacked and robbed by a group of people uh so being robbed the criminals stole about three thousand euros as well as jewelry and gold bullions which are just those hunks of gold that are in bars before they melt it to make stuff (laughs) 
Um, nice. Yeah. And it was a little weird. Left at the crime scene, they found a fake Beretta FS-92 pistol. So basically a toy gun. Um, okay. And the only DNA nice. found on this was, again, the female suspect. Um there were actually four male robbers arrested in connection to this, but even after intense interrogation, none of the four ever admitted to there being a female involved. Uh, so this is around the time police were getting really confused about it, and they were starting to think that maybe there could have been like a transgender criminal, or perhaps they were just working with a different accomplice for every single crime. So uh, between 2000 and 2007 there were more than 20 break-ins in car and motorcycle thefts um and in each one of these her dna showed up so these occurred in hesse baden Württemberg, and sarland which are all in germany and they also happened in tyrol and upper austria in austria <laughs> i'm also sorry if i'm butchering some of these town names i'm doing my best <laughs> um so the next case that her DNA was found at was really baffling uh, because this was a dispute between a family. Uh, on May 6th of 2005, there were two brothers in Worms, Germany, which is a town name that makes me laugh because it is literally called Worms. Um, I'm giggling right now as you said that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these two brothers got into a confrontation with each other after they'd been arguing about uh, which one of the family members should be caring for the grave plot of their late father. Um, so the argument eventually actually escalated to the point where one of the brothers, Randolph, shot several times or attempted to shoot at several times his brother, who he ended up hitting once in the stomach. Uh, his brother did survive, but police still came to investigate the crime scene because it was kind of attempted murder. Uh, and as they were investigating... <laughs> just kind of. <laughs> just kind of, yeah. Um, and as they were looking for the various bullets that were shot, uh, they found one in the wall of the home and upon analysis discovered the DNA of this female suspect on the bullet in the wall. How did that get that's, there? Hmm. Super that's weird. That's a specific place to find DNA. Yeah, what a weird place. So yeah. the um, the police interrogated the brothers about this, uh, and the brothers claimed that they had no idea how this got there uh, because this gun was an illegally owned gun that belonged to their late father for many, many years. Um, Despite this confession that the gun was illegally owned, but it was their father's, uh, the police took saliva samples from every woman in their family, but this came up a dead end as none of the female's saliva matched the DNA. So, unfortunately, this was another dead end. They had nothing to go on, and it was getting really frustrating for both the police and the public because there's so many crimes with similar DNA. The next case I wanted to discuss was another murder, and it was actually this case that kind of really angered the police because it actually affected one of their own. So um, on April 27th of 2007, a 22-year-old policewoman, Michelle uh, Kieswater, as well as her partner were in Heilbronn, Germany, just doing patrols. They were on the elite drug squad. Um, and they were they took a break not far from their dispatch and were just eating lunch in their patrol car. 
Um, as they were eating, before being able to respond, I guess their back doors were unlocked uh, because two unknown assailants got into the back of their car and shot both officers point blank in the back of the head before they could even draw their weapons to respond. Um, wow. Yeah, so that was a really scary case because again there was no witnesses but this was in like broad daylight two police officers shot in their own vehicle um so key sweater she died unfortunately but her partner actually survived the attack um he woke up what yeah he was shot um (laughs) in the head they removed the bullet i believe from the back of his right eye and he was in a coma for three weeks and upon waking up he had no memory of the event holy shit yeah, I mean, holy crap. Sorry, <laughs> French. <laughs> so, the um, obviously, there was a major search of this crime scene. And at the crime scene and in the car, um, they found, again, this mysterious woman's DNA. How is she doing all of these crimes? They still had no idea. Um, so, they found her DNA on the center console as well as the rear passenger seat of the patrol car. But they didn't find any other evidence. This was it. In addition to uh, this, they also, the assailants had stolen the police officers' guns and handcuffs. Uh, so the police search that ensued for this policewoman was actually one of the largest in German history. Uh, it cost the German police over $14 million and had over 16000 uh, overtime man hours to try to solve this and still they couldn't find anything oh my god oh my that's goodness. a lot <laughs> yeah oh and in addition they uh also because of this crime they actually tested the dna of over 800 women across europe with criminal records and not a single one matched so this had to be a new criminal who has somehow evaded the system for this long interesting So it was actually this case that uh, earned this mysterious woman the name, the Phantom of Heilbronn. The final major case I wanted to talk about in relation to her um, was that of a burned asylum seeker that they had found in France. Um, So this one occurred in March of 2009. Uh, Police were called to identify a very badly burned body of an unidentified male asylum seeker uh, that, as I had said, was found in France. Police had recalled a missing persons case from 2002 that they thought kind of sounded similar to the description of the victim, so they tried to pull fingerprints from the victim, uh, and they also did some swabs of the DNA. Um, They couldn't match the fingerprints to the file of the disappeared. However, they did find something really weird on this burned asylum seeker's uh, fingers. The woman's DNA. How does that even happen? Like, how do you find DNA on a burned victim? I was also really confused about that. Like, I didn't think you could... Unless there was, like, tampering with it after. But, like, wouldn't you expect that the fire would just get rid of any sort of evidence that's what i would have thought um but obviously the police also thought this was really odd i guess they had the similar uh hunch but also they were confused because this was clearly a male victim so why were they finding this female's dna on them so they did the same test again they took the a swab from the same place with a new swab and didn't find 
DNA again. They didn't find her DNA again, so where did it go? It was actually because of this case that the police came to the conclusion that they believed the swabs that they had been using to collect DNA had actually been contaminated somehow. Um, And then that raised the question as to whether the woman who they've been finding DNA for over the past, like, 20 years, they started to doubt whether or not she was actually ever involved. So, it really turned into a big ol' whodunit case. Uh, (laughs) So, what they ended up finding was that the cotton swabs they used to collect evidence uh, were never actually certified for human DNA collection. That's a huge issue that you can, that they were using swabs that weren't made for DNA collection. How do they, like, label it as a DNA collection type swab? Like, does it have to go through certain assessments? I'm not positive, you know? to be honest. I have a, I do have a quote that I'm, I'm going to share in a couple minutes of a, an officer that was talking about what they thought about these cotton swabs. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, yeah, I'll just say it now. Um, (laughs) After realizing that these cotton swabs that they've been using for years were never actually certified for human DNA collection, um, an investigator made a comment to the Build newspaper saying, quote, these things were double packaged. We thought they were the Mercedes of cotton swabs, unquote. (laughs) So they were they were double packaged. (laughs) And marketed as sterile. So they were like, these are good. These are perfect. Um, You can market anything as sterile and get away with it. Like, just because it's marketed as sterile, you can't really trust, you know? No. Maybe. Am I (laughs) being too cynic about this? I don't think so. That's actually, in my opinion, anyways, relatively accurate because they... um, looked into the cotton swab company more and realized that they weren't actually lying. Like, the company, to the best of their knowledge, was telling the truth that these were sterile because they did put all of the swabs through a sterilization process uh, before shipment, but the sterilization process removed all viruses, bacteria, and fungi from the swabs, but it didn't destroy DNA. So they were sterile for, like, medical use, but not sterile for forensic use. Exactly. So as it turns out, um, over the 15 years of unsolved cases, what had really happened was that at some point at the Greener Bio One factory, one of the female employees, whether it was carelessness or a complete accident, contaminated God knows how many packages of sterile cotton swabs. And these cotton swabs were used by police jurisdictions all over Austria, France, and Germany. Holy. Yeah. So Do we know the woman? No. Like, did they ever find out? No. That's what disappoints me most. Um, they never released the true identity of this woman. I suspect it's because sh- the public would probably put her in a lot of heat for this. Um, but... Yeah, that kind of raises, actually not kind of, this really raises the question to me as to how many people got away with these crimes. Yeah. Because there were... Well, obviously, I was just going to say they're focused on the wrong person at that sense, in that sense. Yeah, so just thinking about the Halebron police officer, how it was one of the largest German investigations, and the whole time they were looking for the wrong person. 
Yeah, and with the ones you talked about in the beginning, um, where they both had money missing, did they ever figure out what the heck was going on with that? I I honestly couldn't even find anything about it, which leads me to uh, which leads me to believe that a lot of the cases that they believed were uh, done by the Phantom of Halbron have gone unsolved and stayed unsolved simply because it's been so long and there's just no there was no evidence on these scenes so they don't even have anything to go back and assess oh my goodness yeah you were you were saying it was really hard to find the actual cases for this weren't you yeah they um research wise yeah i finally found a timeline uh it's a bit of a vague timeline and it's actually originally made in german so i google translated the page so there were some errors (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it was um it was oddly difficult to find some of them. I'm not sure if it's just because the police were embarrassed and didn't want to reveal the specific cases that they had tried to pin on this person. Um but yeah, I think I just think about the fact that there could have been a serial killer out there hunting old people that got away because the police were just looking at the wrong direction. And I don't blame them because this woman's DNA was everywhere. Mm-hmm. but uh do you know what happened to her like she can't really be charged with anything but i the police say hey don't contaminate these swabs or anything <laughs> i believe the police ended up like they stopped using the greener bio one swabs they now use swabs that are that are certified for human dna collection uh but there's no information at least that i can find about the outcome of the woman who actually contaminated these like she's completely anonymous really that's so interesting the um which is strange because she like isn't her picture up and stuff yeah i have a picture of a girl on our slides that comes up when i google the phantom of halbron that's actually the murdered policewoman oh Oh, okay (laughs) (laughs) sorry i should be laughing (laughs) at our research really paying off (laughs) (laughs) it was just a quick google i had no idea um so even though a lot of the cases kind of went unsolved the policewoman one actually was solved uh and it was because of the guns that were stolen um i don't remember the exact name of the group but it ended up being found um that two or three neo-nazis had committed this crime Uh, And they discovered this because she was the final victim of a series of 10 murders that they had done. And then they committed suicide with the police officer's guns. Oh. Yeah. So at at the very least, the police officer's case has been solved. Uh, But I do think it's unfortunate how many others are just... There's a pretty high possibility that they're just going to remain unsolved in a mystery. That's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. No, yeah. I hate the fact that all of these cases, just like nothing is going to come out of them. I know. It just stresses me out because I want to know how many, like, I think her DNA, I had said, was involved in, was found at at least six murder scenes. So. Oh, my God. How many murderers are free right now? Just roaming around, probably thanking the Phantom of Halebron for contaminating everything. And didn't you say that there was, like, 40 cases that she was in, like, her DNA was found in? Yeah, her DNA was found at about 40, 40 crime scenes. 
Oh my goodness. But okay, my question to the police officers, I'm not saying they don't know how to do their jobs, but aren't you supposed to take multiple swabs? Like how could it be that all of them are contaminated in the pack or however they bought them? with her DNA like couldn't you have taken maybe three swabs and then you'd have a one of three chance of getting her DNA that's what I was wondering too because I I don't know if they took multiple swabs of like how many they did that for but I the only uh scene that I read that they definitely took multiple swabs was the one of the burnt asylum seeker because they were suspicious about the fact that this female's DNA was on this person who was clearly male so uh, that's the first that I heard that they retested it with the same swabs and found no more evidence because that's where they started to get suspicious about it. Um, mm-hmm. But I would hope they did their due diligence and took multiple samples. You would hope so. but They might not swab yeah. the exact same area twice. You know? Yeah, that's fair. But yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that is all I have to say about the Phantom of Helbron. Uh, thanks for listening. I can't wait to hear about DNA contamination. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. That was a wild ride. Uh, Nicole, did you want to tell us a bit more about DNA contamination? Yes, I would love to. I just want to say out of the three of us, I know the least about DNA. So <laughs> this will be interesting. I have not taken... I took genetics. That was it. No DNA typing, no anything. Um, but kind of jumping into it, so if anyone is still a bit confused, DNA contamination, it's when outside sources of DNA are mixed into DNA samples that are being tested, and so since we're interested in forensics, this would be mixing into samples that are evidence at crime scenes and several cases. So what happens is very small or, or and or degraded samples of DNA can be extracted and they go through several cycles of amplifications and they this gives you a profile of the DNA and this can be used to help criminal investigations to try and find either suspects or um, identify victims. And so we've talked about it in episode three um, when we covered Paul Bernardo and DNA but a technique used to make these copies of DNA, um, it's called a polymerase chain reaction, or PCR for short. And this just allows scientists to analyze the DNA and make these comparisons. And so essentially what happens is there's a series of temperature changes that happens, and this is dumbed down. This is what creates the copies. Like, there's multiple steps and stuff you have to put into it, but... It's like making a soup. You throw everything in, heat it up, and then you have DNA. <laughs> Dumb down. <laughs> um, so the DNA from the crime scene will undergo PCR, and it's either compared to DNA in databases or it'll be compared to suspect DNA taken. Those are typically the two main areas. And because of the sensitivity of PCR, though, this means that there's plenty of room for contamination if proper procedures aren't followed. So typically there's like PPE and sterilization and all of this, but even if something's out the window, then it can mess up the whole DNA process. And interesting, learning this or researching, I guess, non-human contamination samples won't be amplified since the STR systems are species specific. I have STRs. Can you explain what STR systems are? I wrote it. I was going to research it and then I forgot. Uh, yes, just one second. It's short tandem repeat 
right? Yeah. It's just like short little pieces of DNA that repeats a lot that they can look for and will be specific to you or specific to humans. Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense then because anything that's not human, it won't show up, which I thought was really interesting. So any contamination is from humans, essentially, from what I can understood, understand. Um, so there's three main categories of DNA contamination, and this includes the analyst's DNA mixing into samples. So whoever's conducting the analysis, their DNA gets mixed in. Other samples can be mixed in that are present in the lab. So this would just be a whole other sample in itself. And the third kind of source of contamination are due to DNA fragments, sorry, DNA fragments that are used to compare with the suspect DNA. So these fragments, they are used to determine the size of alleles that were multiplied. And alleles, if you go back to um, episode three, they're just like a piece of the DNA. Um, So they are what's multiplied and the different sizes can tell these analysts different things and these are what are looked for when doing their study whatever it is that they do so examples of some sample to sample contamination these can include improper handling of evidence this can be from reagents uh, improper cleaning of tools and obviously among other things there's several things that can contaminate this and reagents if anyone doesn't know, these are like substances or compounds that are added to things and it causes a chemical reaction, essentially. So other sources of contamination include cross-contamination of nucleic acids and amplified material carryover. This is very specific, but like, I'm not specific, scientific, I meant. Um, Nucleic acids are just kind of a part of the DNA and... um, Amplified material carryover is when material that had been previously amplified or like multiplied, this will carry over to the next batch of samples that undergo the same amplification process. So any of that DNA will then be seen in the next batch that sampled, which kind of sucks. And unfortunately, there's a wide range of contamination sources in PCR. And they're typically unexpected. You can't really tick off what sources that'll be from. And so it makes determining the contamination like quite difficult for investigators. And that being said, though, um, there are ways to detect certain types of contamination that they kind of like check off their list. And then if they don't know the, because of these techniques, then they're kind of screwed. Um But scientists that work at the lab, they typically have their DNA profile on, like, paper, hand. I don't know how they store it, but their profile is known. And so when they run a a negative control, if they see their profile kind of matched up and comparing to the sample they just run, they can kind of spot that and say, oh, this is my DNA. This is something happened. We have to do it again, throw it out whatever the different sizes of alleles so this was the um fragments that i was talking about they are one of the easier ways to detect contamination since a clear pattern excuse me can be seen in what's called an allelic ladder so if um 
there's an odd pattern that's sticking out or something that just doesn't make sense, this kind of sets off alarms for analysts. And when there are other sources of DNA contaminating the sample, this can make detection a bit more difficult. Um, but because of this, there are strict procedures and safeguards in place, like I've mentioned before, to try and prevent this contamination. Because if you can't figure it out the first two techniques, it makes it very, very, very difficult for scientists. There are also tests called proficiency tests, and these are conducted to make sure that contamination is not a frequent event, so that it's more of a rare event in um, their tests. But from what I could find online, they it's said that they're often lab-specific, and the process differs from lab to lab, so there's no like one way to conduct proficiency tests, which doesn't really make sense if there's supposed to be standardization and all of this to prevent contamination, but oh well. And there's also what's called a reagent plank. So everything is used. So they basically do the whole PCR amplification process, but they don't include the DNA sample. It's just all of the reagents and the mixtures in that. And so if they see a spike they know something's up and lastly there's the negative control where it's just water used um, instead of extracted dna so they'll run the pcr but instead of the dna sample they'll put water in place of the dna and hopefully that um, comes out clean and there's no unexpected peaks or anything like that because these unexpected peaks will uh, indicate to the scientists or analysts whoever that there is contamination and then they have to go through the process of trying to figure out what it is or they just throw it out um on to something that i found really interesting i had a twitter war about this with someone it didn't and i just gave up i deleted my twitter side story though anyways touch dna um this is still being investigated because it has the potential to severely contaminate crime scenes. Um, so essentially everything we touch, we leave behind our DNA. And there's studies about like tertiary transfer and all of this stuff. Um, so this is kind of new in the field. They're trying to make it allowed, I guess, in courts because right now it's a very faulty science. There's nothing really supporting it. And there's actually two studies that I found that were really interesting. So the University of Indianapolis, they conducted a study where they had someone shake hands with another person. The odd part is, for me, they had to do it for two minutes. So I don't know if they were just holding hands. Um, but they were shaking hands for two minutes. And then they had person A and person B. So then they had person A hold a knife. So the DNA profile of the person who never touched the knife, so person B was actually found on the weapon in 85% of the samples. So say, like, I shook your hand, Journey, and then I picked up a knife, killed someone. 85% of the time, you're going to be found at that crime scene because your DNA was on that knife. That's so spooky. Right? Ugh. Isn't that crazy? And then in a fifth of those samples, the person B, so your DNA... um was identified as either the main contributor or the only contributor. So, 
So yeah, would, that's okay, not good. <laughs> your DNA and my DNA would be on that knife. Correct. So, but oh, in the 85, math isn't my strong suit, so I'm just going to talk it out. The 85% where your DNA would be found, in that 85, one-fifth, so one out of five of those 85%, you were the only or main contributor of the DNA found. Oh my goodness. So in a fifth of those, like I, my DNA may not have even been found. That's really alarming. So it's kind of like Journey's DNA is your gloves. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Right? Isn't that shocking? I'm a little concerned about the validity of this study because I don't think many people shake hands for two minutes, but people hold hands. (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) We could still hold hands and it will do the same thing. Exactly. And this was in, in... This silly Twitter debate I got over in. Um, <laughs> and what happened was, like, it, if you have someone living in your home constantly touching things, like, their DNA is going to be present on household objects. So. They may not have done it, but they're still present. So don't live with a murderer. Otherwise, you're going to be caught, too. Yeah, basically. Go beans. Go beans. Yeah. And another study... Um, this was by Schwark et al. There was five, seven of them, a whole bunch of them. These researchers actually swabbed equipment and tables that are used during autopsies to see if there'd be any DNA past, like, touch DNA. They ran them through different PCRs, and they found that four of the six cases that they had swabbed had DNA transfer from the autopsy table to a body. Oh my so, goodness. If you're an, like if you're conducting an autopsy on a murdered person, DNA from the previous person that was on that autopsy table could be found on your body. So it would depend when they took the DNA swabs and the samples, but four out of six, I mean, it's a very low um, sample size, but still. But if you convert that into a percentage and you don't tell the sample size, that's alarming. <laughs> right? Oh my goodness. And this was even after they had conducted, like, so in the study, um, they went through multiple different cleaning techniques. So they, like, bleached everything. They did a whole bunch of stuff. And they still found DNA present. Which I, I don't know how. It baffles me. But we just need yeah. to invest in some new cleaning stuff that, like, also gets rid of DNA. Because, like... Thinking about the sterilization of the cotton swabs that got rid of bacteria, viruses, all that stuff, but didn't destroy DNA? Like, how does that even work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. And strange. if the person, the second person on the autopsy table who you swabbed and you found the first person's DNA, if they died suspiciously and the first person's DNA was on there, could the first person who was on the autopsy table be, like, thought of as responsible for killing this person? I don't know. Or would they have to... What are you going to do? You have a dead person suspect then. A dead suspect. Or would that throw out... investigate it. Yeah, would that throw out any other evidence because they found this faulty evidence? They're like, oh, this DNA is wrong, so is all the DNA wrong? Hopefully the investigators would be smart enough to go through the medical examiner's records and be like, who did they last perform an autopsy on? Or the medical examiner's like, hey... The name of your suspect is in my freezer. <laughs> okay, wait, what do they do with bodies after they conduct an autopsy? I don't think we ever covered that. 
I think usually they sew them back up and depending on if there's a family that wants to claim them, then they'll they'll give it back to the family for like a ceremony or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about families. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, do they just burn them after? <laughs> what the heck? I think they yeah, must if there is no family that claims them. Because I can't imagine that the medical examiner would pay for like a plot for an unidentified. No. I think churches have that. I've heard... Um... But you have to pay. Like, you have to pay rent on a dead person in the ground. That is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, back on track to kind of look at the prevention and fixing the problem. Um, Since DNA is kind of known as the gold standard of evidence, as we've kind of discussed, investigators like to heavily rely on this sort of DNA. But uh, a scientist from the Forensic Institute in Glasgow, United Kingdom, his name was Alan Jameson, he actually once said regarding, like, criminal cases and all of this, that, quote, the finding of someone's DNA implies their presence, but presence is not a necessary consequence of finding someone's DNA. We need to scream that from the rooftops. Yeah. Like, everyone needs to know that, thinking back to your Twitter battle. <laughs> no, he would get very butthurt over that. Uh-huh. He'd come back with a Wikipedia page and be like, you're wrong! Read this Wikipedia page. <laughs> you don't know anything about DNA. <laughs> Read my scholarly articles and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Anyways, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not mad about that. I'm not mad about this Twitter war. Never. I don't hold grudges. He's going to listen to this episode and be like... Oh my goodness. Well, then he's a fan. If you're listening to us, you gave us a listen. Thanks. I don't care what you do with your time afterwards. <laughs> you're supporting our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> Anyways, one of the best ways to prevent this kind of contamination is actually to separate lab space and equipment for um, the PCR pro- process. Excuse me. So you have like a pre and a post amplification process and all of this. And so having two separate um stations is actually really beneficial to eliminating any sort of contamination and so it's recommended to use only dedicated equipment in one area and not the other and so it made me think of covid times because i was reading about some labs where they have like arrows on how to direct traffic through the lab because you don't want to walk from like post back to pre with samples and possibly touching something and so sounded very covid times a no-brainer obviously use gloves conducting these analyses i would be curious to see if the phantom of halebron or whatever um if she was wearing gloves yeah i would assume she was but like sorry i'm wondering the same thing like i assume for ppe and like for sanitization purposes they'd have to wear gloves but like how did her dna get on so many swabs like, was she spitting right. on everything? No, but she was just making them. So even being there and touching them, and because they go through a sterilization process after, I bet you they don't even have to wear gloves because they'll be sterilized after they're made. I didn't even think about that. Oh. Hmm. But didn't it say, didn't they acknowledge that they didn't sterilize for DNA? Like, DNA... But they yeah, just sterilized for, like, viruses process, and stuff. Uh, doesn't destroy DNA. It just destroys, like, bacteria, viruses, and fungi. And was the company aware of this, or was it, like, the police that found that out? I think the company was aware of this. I'm not... I didn't do a lot of research on, like, the company itself, but I'm pretty sure the company yeah. knew that, like, they didn't certify them for DNA. They were never trying to market them for DNA. 
So the cops. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the the police station's issue that they were getting these. Like, one of the investigators was like, they were double packaged. This is like the Mercedes of cotton swabs. (laughs) Double packaged. You hear that? Double up on everything. Anyways... Avoid touching things that are not in your station. That makes sense. Don't do it. Just keep your hands to yourself. (laughs) Exactly. Like, there's so many ways. I mean, I say this as I'm itching my nose, but, like, (laughs) do a negative control. Do a blank reagent. Like, there's so many ways to just prevent this that it just baffles me that there were so many cases that she had contaminated these swabs. So... Samples that have also come in contact with contaminated samples. English. (laughs) I'm really hyped up over this contamination now. This Twitter war has fueled something inside of me. Um, So samples that have come in contact with contaminated samples, they're just thrown away because they're no longer of use to investigators. Um, They're, yeah they're contaminated there's no way to like pull separate like unless you cut the swab in half and hoped that like one dna was on one side and the other dna was on the rest like there's no way of telling it so it's just easiest to check them and everything needs to be washed down with bleach or ultraviolet light if bleach cannot be used which I thought was interesting. I didn't know UV was like a disinfectant. Yeah, I find it so bizarre that it is, but I know like a lot of places, I think including hospitals, use UV light like right now because of COVID to disinfect stuff. You can buy like a UV phone disinfectant thing on Amazon or Wish or something I saw. I keep getting ads for it. Oh, why do you need to decontaminate everything, Journey? Because COVID... (laughs) I live in Alberta. We don't have COVID rules. Oh, that's true. Well, that that's my little spiel about DNA contamination. And also, if our fans want to learn more about DNA, we do have a past episode that, as Nicole said, we went into a lot more detail about the DNA. Um, so if you are interested in learning more, you could definitely go back and have a look at that episode. And if you want some light reading, I have a DNA textbook. No, no, (laughs) no, that should, no, take that back. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Nicole. That was very interesting and exciting. Um, Our next topic is going to be about Nelson Hart, who is from Gander in Newfoundland. I hated the way I said that. Gander. I had no idea he was from Gander. Yeah. Yeah, he's from Gander. Um. And I had friends in first year who, who were from there, so that's kind of cool. Um, so we'll be talking about him and Mr. Big Techniques, which are very interesting. And then the next week, we're going to talk about cannibals. Yay! So that's exciting. And not Jeffrey Dahmer, because he's overly done. He's just, everyone knows that cannibal. Okay, and I have a joke for you guys. I always <gasps> look so forward excited. to this. Okay. I always forget about it because I'm like, there's no way we can come up with a new one each time. I screenshotted a bunch, so I'm prepared for the next couple ones. <gasps> oh my god, look okay. at you. Okay, so this one isn't really a joke, but it's kind of a question. So, at crime scenes where they sketch out a body with chalk, would you call that a diagram? As in <laughs> D-I-E? 
I, instead of a regular it, diagram? I don't know how I feel about that one, Journey. I know, it was kind of weak. It was funnier in my head. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. Would it be a diagram? What do they call it? Does it have an actual name? Can we start calling them diagrams? Diagrams. Is that insensitive? I, I like it. I think it's hilarious. Yeah, add a little humor into into murder. You know what? It's it's a tough place for investigators to be. They need a little bit of humor in their lives. Right? They have a lot of humor. And it's very dark. That's the kind of humor that you gotta have. It's the good exactly. Stuff. Okay, well that's my weak joke. Uh, it wasn't weak. It was good. It, it was funny. I liked it. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you want to tell us, Nicole, where people can find us? I would love to. Um, people can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WTForensicsPC. Our website is WhatTheForensics.ca, where there's a little bit of info about all the three of us. You can put some pictures to Names to faces. That's what I meant to say. You can put our names to our faces. Um, and our email is whattheforensics at gmail.com. You can email us any recommendations, any concerns, questions. If you want a sticker, you can do that too. Buy our stickers. Yeah. They're really cute and not expensive at all. Yeah. and We, have we so don't many. even make money on them. We just <laughs> made them because we like them and we just want to share our excitement with everybody. And who doesn't love a good sticker? I've been doing sticker trades. Like, oh. some of my friends who do, like, um, I really don't want to shout them out, but I'm going to shout them out. MTM Grand. <laughs> <laughs> they have their sticker, um, so I traded them with a WTF one. Nice. Love that. Promoting. Who needs a marketing team, you know? Right? Exactly. All right. Well, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week.